As they're being dismissed, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to that 1 Corinthians chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 6 passage, if you would. In 1979, a Russian filmmaker by the name of Andrei Tarkovsky made a thriller, a dystopian type of science fiction movie about three men that were on a journey together. The plot of the movie is basically about the one man, he was the guide, and he was leading the other two men to a place that was called the zone, specifically the room within the zone. When you get there and you see it, it looks like an eerie post-apocalyptic oasis. In other words, it used to be really nice, but something had really devastated it. And now the place that they were was beginning to grow back and have life again. Making it to the room is really the whole point of the entire journey that these men were on. And it was a dangerous journey to get there, but they knew it would be worth it. For in the room their dreams would be able to come true. In the room, you get exactly what you want. In the room, see, the guide tells them that they will achieve their heart's desire, what they really love the most, which is why when they arrive at the room, the two men, having been led there by the guide, begin to get cold feet. And by that I mean, the guide says this to them, we are now at the very threshold of the room, This is the most important moment in your life, he says. Your innermost wish and love will be made true. So here we are, he says to the two men. This is the place where you can have what you want, what you truly love. Who wants to go first? The two men, believe it or not, hesitate. And for a moment they sit there in silence because... A creepy epiphany has dawned on them. What if I don't know what I want? They even say it out loud to the guest, to the guide, and he says, "Well, that's for the room to decide, because the room reveals all." See, what you get in the room is not what you think you wish for, but what you most deeply wish for. They begin to think to themselves, as you might. What if they don't want what they think they want? What if the desires that they convince themselves are most valuable to them are not? What if their inner longings and their deepest loves are something different than what they think? What if, in effect, they are not the people that they think that they really are? A man by the name of George Dyer watched the movie and he wrote a book on it. And he says, in this moment of decision, you can see and palpably feel the angst of each of the two men. And then he says this about us all. Not many people can confront the truth about themselves. If they did, they would take an immediate and profound dislike to the person in whose skin they've learned to sit quite tolerably all these years. I think this morning, if you're honest... Most of us can identify with that statement. If I asked you this morning as a Christian, tell me about what you really want, what you most deeply long for, what really is your ultimate love? Well, of course, you would know the right answer. (laughs) You know what you ought to say. 
And what you state publicly could be actually entirely genuine and authentic. Perhaps even a true expression of your intellectual conviction. But let me ask you, would you want to go into the room? Are you confident that what you think you love aligns with what your deepest, innermost longings really are? Listen to Dyer and his concluding thoughts he writes in the book. He says, your deepest desire is the one manifested by your daily life and habits. This is because our actions, our very doings, bubble up from our loves. Do you see what he's saying? I think it's the same as what Augustine said in the third century when he, when he wrote, love, but be careful what you love. For Christians, we're not looking forward to the room, but rather we know that it's God's word that reveals everything about our lives. It shows us what our truest longings really are. And I think it's important for us, especially as we read throughout all the scriptures, which frequently warn us about tragic consequences of a misoriented love. See, we need to regularly, and that's why we're having this message this morning, we need to regularly calibrate our hearts to align our loves with God's loves. In 1914, not long after, actually, the sinking of the Titanic, Congress convened and heard, had a hearing to discern a, another na- uh, nautical tragedy that took place. In January of 1914, there was a thick fog off the coast of Virginia, and a steamer called the Monroe was rammed by a ship called the Nantucket. That day, in that accident... 41 sailors lost their lives in the frigid cold waters of the Atlantic. As a result, as you can imagine, both of the captains of both of the ships that were involved were arraigned on charges. Captain Edward Johnson admitted during cross-examination in his trial that the navigation system that he used, which was his own compass, was deviated about 2% from the standard, standard magnetic compass that he should have been using. His steering compass in the entire year that he was captain of that ship had never been checked out, had never been matched up to see if it was actually still accurate. His faulty compass, as a result, misorientated him and the entire ship, and that's why they ran into the other one. That day, it cost 41 seamen their lives. It's a good story to help us understand this, that is absolutely crucial for us as Christians that we in our lives recognize that our loves must constantly be recalibrated, reoriented in our lives because the danger of a disordered love is real. And in particular this morning, I want to focus on this one, the love of money. In the New Testament, the Greek word is really just one. We have three words, it is one, and it really is money lovers. The literal translation for it would be lovers of silver, currency, gold, thus money. It's mentioned four times in the New Testament. The Pharisees, the religious elite, the ones that everyone thought had their business together spiritually. 
Jesus says they were money lovers. In fact, in Luke 16, the story about the rich man in hell and Lazarus is a result of the picture of the Pharisees who were money lovers. 2 Timothy 3.2 says, In the last days, here's what will mark human society. They will be all kinds of lovers. They will be pleasure lovers. They will be self-lovers. And they will be money lovers, but not God lovers. Hebrews 13.5 is a warning to all true Christians. Keep your life away from money love, it says. And although the command seems outright and obvious, can I tell you? It's not easy to live by. Because remember what the story told us? Many people have trouble confronting themselves with the truth about themselves. In all my years in the ministry, and all the times I've counseled people, I have helped people who've come to me and said that they needed help with lust, pornography, anger, anxiety, depression, fear, bad language, unforgiveness, bitterness, depression, and on and on. But in all my years, I have never had anyone, not even once, come up to me and approach me and say, Pastor Walker, I need your help. I am greedy, materialistic, and a money lover. Not once. Apparently, we have learned to sit quite tolerably in our money lover's skin. I tell you this morning that being a money lover is incredibly dangerous. I think perhaps far more than most people, including some of God's people, realize. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10, can I ask you to see it this way? It is like going into the room. You're going to see it this morning because you cannot read this passage and the one at the end of the text, at the end of the chapter. You cannot go in there without knowing this when you come out. Oh, That is what I really love. Paul tells us two reasons why money lovers should be afraid. Two dangers that happen when you fall into being a money lover. The first one is this. It destroys your contentment. That's an earthly consequence. Far worse than that even is it can destroy your faith. And that has eternal consequences. So let me take the time this morning and the few minutes we have to unpack both of them. How do I know? Here's a diagnostic, self-diagnostic question for you. How do I know, Pastor Walker? How do I know if I'm a money lover or not? Well, let me tell you. Money lovers do not embrace true gain, and that has serious consequences. In the text, you can see it for yourself. There's a little contrast. In verse 5, the, one, the verse before our text, it's a contrast because it says this. And constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining this, false teachers, that Godliness is a means of gain. Now, the word gain is repeated in verse 5 and in verse 6. And it's contrasting two views of how you get gain, what true gain and false gain really are, and how they're different from one another. And you can see it right away. In verse 5, gain, in their sense, comes from not having godliness, but using godliness, using your spirituality. And I can tell you this, look on TV, it's in abundance. TV preachers galore and many other ones, they see that appearing on TV and having a crowd and being popular, it's a means of gain. 
But that contrasts with the Christian, the real believer, the one who knows that the greatest gain is not using godliness, but comes from godliness. And so we're immediately confronted with a choice. What is our view of gain? Does our view of gain come from greediness, or does it come from godliness? Because you cannot have godliness with contentment, as the verse to follow says, if you don't first have the godliness. Without godliness... Our desires and our love for money will run rampant. The desire for more, see, it is the first step toward the destruction of your contentment. Because the verse says godliness with contentment. Contentment that flows out of godliness. Not the false godliness, not the pretend godliness, not the Sunday morning only shallow superficial godliness, but the real godliness. How do you view gain? Do you view it with God or without God? Because it will make all the difference in the world. People are betting on just about anything these days. Some would even thought that not this what I'm going to talk to you about would have never have happened, certainly not 10 or 20 years ago. So let me tell you, today's Super Bowl will be in Las Vegas. That is a shock. The NFL's decision to hold the game in Las Vegas is an about face for the league. Let me tell you what they used to believe. They were shunned. They used to shun completely. I mean completely anything that had to do with gambling or Las Vegas. In 2003, the NFL refused to air a commercial from Las Vegas Convention Center during the Super Bowl because it was related to gambling. They said, we're not taking your money. You can't do that. In 2012, a lawyer for the NFL that worked for the NFL doubled down when he said this, by, he said this, with sports betting would be negatively in its impact across the country in sports, meaning we don't want to impact young people by having the highest level of sports be about gambling. 2015, the NFL prohibited players attending a fantasy sports convention held by Tony Romo in Las Vegas because it was associated with gambling. So here we are, nine years later, and there's gambling anywhere and everywhere about sports, and they're having the Super Bowl in Las Vegas. What happened? Money-loving happened. Robert Kraft and Jerry Jones, they put the money up to form DraftKings. The 2018 Supreme Court decision said this, Now states can determine themselves whether they will allow betting on sports. 38 states now do that for a multi-billion dollar industry. Some 68 million people today are projected to bet on the Super Bowl. And today, $23 billion will be spent on gambling on the Super Bowl One writer recently commented that betting, once completely excluded from mainstream sports, is now inextricably with it on every level. He says, as a result, the game is over. Betting has won. Truthfully, money lovers are in control. See, over time, the NFL changed its view on what gain is. Well, see, that isn't something that just happens to people who run the NFL. That happens to all of us. 
See, over time, if you're a money lover, see, you will begin to do things that you thought and talked about and stood against years ago. You never thought in a million years that you would buy a lottery ticket. Now you buy them every week. Oh, there are people now who said, oh, I would never shortcut and cheat on my taxes. Did I say the cheat? Yeah. Okay. But they do because who will know and they really need the money. Oh, they work extra. I mean really extra. More and more and more and more to the devastation of their marriage, the raising of their children. Why? Because of the love of money. Gambling casinos. You thought they were the worst thing ever, and now you find yourselves frequenting them on vacations. Oh, see, do you understand what the text is saying? Look at it. It says with me, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Why should you take this approach? The little word for is the reason. Do you see it in verse 7? For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. It is the logic Logic of contentment. See, the word nothing, we had nothing when we began, and we will have nothing when we die. And the idea is, if you start with nothing and end with nothing, all the time in between, you get to decide what will be your everything. Because on the ends of your life, you have nothing. So tell me, what is your everything? Paul wants to know. Alexander the Great, who died the most powerful and richest man in the world of his day, he requested this at his funeral, and I quote, when I die, carry me forth on my bier, which is my funeral platform, with my hands not wrapped, that all may see that they are empty. His life was empty, although he said and thought he had everything. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 6, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And here's the reason, because the little word for is used again. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, the reality is, the bottom line is, you know you're a money lover when you focus on the temporal. See, that's what Alexander the Great wants to tell us. Don't focus on the, don't be wrapped up in everything that you see. Money lovers don't understand or live in light of the fact that money and all it can buy will not last. See, when you're a money lover, you focus on the temporal because money lovers spend the vast majority of their time pursuing things that have no eternal value. You know, the old adage that you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul is still true. Jesus said, here's true gain. What will a man give in exchange for a soul? What if a man gains the whole world, gains the whole world, and loses his own soul? What if you think that this was really what mattered? Money mattered. Things I could get with money. Having my life built. What if it turns out that you are completely wrong about it. See, living only for now will destroy your contentment because now really never has enough. That's why verse 8 says, if you have food and clothing, if you have the basics in life, you should be 
content. And the word content is a strange word. It means self-sufficient. It was used in New Testament times to talk about someone who had completely mastered something. That they were self-sufficient. That they were totally in control of it. Paul says this. See, I've mastered contentment, he says in Philippians 4. See, if I have a lot, I'm content. I I have contentment. If I have a little, I have contentment. He mastered it because he never let money master him. Paul was able to say, I have enough. Whether that enough was a lot or a little, he could say, I have enough. Pursuing money as our supreme goal in life focuses on the temporal and leaves the spiritual and the eternal unconsidered. You don't think that's true? Let me ask you another question. Ask yourself, what am I doing for eternity with my money? Do you know why preachers stand up and say the Old Testament idea of giving 10% of all your income to the Lord is good and why above that you should give offerings? You know why we say that? Because, pastor, you want the money. No. Because I don't want you to love it. See, you know how you, you have to give it away Because I want you to think about eternity. Think about what lasts, what really matters most. It is absurd, is it not? How much stuff that we buy and how much we store it, or dare I say, hoard it. We stack it on shelves, we hang it in closets, we put it in the garage. Oh, I hate that. It's absolutely unbelievable how much useless stuff that we have. Verse 9 says, and the first word is this, but. See, Christians are to be content because they know eternal trumps temporal. They know that food and clothing basics here is nothing compared to what I will have there. See, Christians know that, but money lovers don't. And that's what verse 9 says. But those who desire to be rich. Now, I want you to really, please hear me. I want you to see the inner workings of money lovers. They don't just ignore temporal things. I mean, focus on temporal things and ignore eternal things on purpose, per se. It's because of what they want. It's because they went into the room and found out what was really their true love. And the text says this, desire, and then a few words later, desires, love of money, verse 10, craving. Do you see it? They're all passion words, things that you want. Epicurus, the philosopher, said this, the secret of contentment is not to add to a person's possessions, but to take away from their desires. See, our problem with money love is an inside job. We are not in control of our wants, and we have, as a result, disordered loves. See, the verse reveals all, does it not? I mean, they have stepped into God's room and he has looked into their hearts and revealed to them what they really love. And for these, it's money love. And can I tell you, the consequences are dire. Verse 9 says this, but if you want to desire to love riches, you will fall into temptation and snares and senseless and harmless desires that drown people, plunge them, submerge them in ruin devastation, perdition. Oh, do you see what he's saying? Hear me. 
Money, love will blind you. It will deceive you. Do you see in the text? All they can see is the trappings of money, but they don't see the trap, which Paul says is a snare. You see, money loving has traps for you. That The more you want to have it, the more you think you have to get it, and vice versa. And there's traps for you, and you think it'll solve all your, if I could just have this, oh, I could get this. If I had this much money, I could retire, I could have, I could do, my life would be better. I would have so less anxiety, traps. But see, it blinds you because you see the trappings of money, but you don't see the trap. You see the pleasures of loving money, but not its pains. Did you see what it says? It has pierced themselves, verse 10. Many harmless, hurtful desires. See, all you see is all the positive pleasures you can get out of the money that you want to obtain, but you don't see all the pain and the grief and the sorrow and the agony that goes with it. See, they see the delights of loving money, but not the drowning. They never see that. Did you see the cigarette commercial the guy says who's 57? Hey, I always thought that smoking this kind of cigarette was great, but I guess they didn't really tell you what it was going to do to you. As he has to have a tube in his neck. Oh, riches are the same way. Our world tells you, oh, this is great. You get this, have this, make this, improve this. And they don't really tell you about the drowning or the destruction. And there are casualties of money, love everywhere, including the pages of Scripture. And Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom greater money and greater riches. He didn't know that he would forfeit his wife and his daughters and his morality. Achan, who thought he could hide in what he really wanted when God had prohibited it, it cost him his life and his entire family. Gehazi, Judas, Ananias and Sapphira, Simon the sorcerer, the list is endless of people who have become money lovers. Truly the saying is right, he is most rich who desires least. But lesson learned for them and perhaps some of you too late. In 2014, the author Hampton Sides wrote a compelling account about the 19th century polar expedition of the USS Jeanette. It was captained by Lieutenant George DeLong. And his whole expedition rested on a picture of an unknown North Pole map that was laid out on the papers given to them by a man by the name of Dr. August Heinrich Peterman. In this so-called map, there was supposed to be a gateway through the ice that opened up into a vast polar sea, and you wouldn't have to be stuck in all the ice. You'll be able to go right through the middle of it, and everything would be fine. But it wasn't. He staked everything on that map. But it turned out that he was wrong. Because the map was wrong. The map's picture did not represent anything that actually existed. is what he thought existed. They had to shed their complete organizing ideas and replace them with a true map of the Arctic as it really was. The rest of the story is how they had to fight to save all their lives, which they almost completely lost. I tell you this morning that our world... Our culture is constantly selling faulty maps of what the good life is all about. 
painting alluring pictures in a world that really never exists. If you had this and you could buy this and you had this money, they'd tell you you'd finally have rest, you'd have peace, you'd have joy. It doesn't exist through money. Too often we stake the expedition of our lives, of our families, and even our eternities on this reality, which is not a reality. And it's not until we are shipwrecked, or let me use the text's words, it's not until we are trapped, it's not until we are drowning, it's not until money-loving has almost destroyed everything that we value in this life, do we realize that we have trusted faulty maps that go against the Scriptures. See, being a money-lover is dangerous because it destroys your contentment. And so you must find it not in God, but in many other things that money can buy. But worse than that, it's dangerous because it destroys your faith. See verse 10? For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this, through what? This craving, this loving, this desire for money, what? That some have wandered away from the faith. Giles Gouge wrote an article not too long ago, and the title of it was called The Tale of Two Tailors. He records that Taylor Swift grew up in the Christian faith, but a few years after she became popular, famous, and had a lot of money and stardom that she infrequently ever mentions anything about the what faith that she once confessed or professed. At best, the writer says, she's only vague about her Christian beliefs. So much so that you wouldn't believe that she even is one, he says. In 2003, she released a song asking this, where was God when 9-11 happened? Listen to her blasphemous words. Here's the chorus of the song. And didn't they call you? Didn't they need you bad enough, God? Was there some reason I am not aware of? Did you not write it down? Just one more thing to do, I guess. Where were you? Where were you? And didn't they pray too? Here is Taylor Swift indicting God and what God is doing during 9-11. Taylor Swift, if you follow her life at all, and I hope you don't, has replaced God with other loves. Her seventh album called Daylight, the last song on the album is called Lovers, and to this she sings, I want to be defined by the things that I love. I think she is. She stepped into the room, and now she knows. The second four in our text is verse 10. Do you see it? Verse 7 had the first four, the first reason set. Now we see verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Did you catch it? It's not money that's evil. If you have a lot of it, praise God. Use it for the kingdom. But it's not money that's the problem. It's loving it. That's the root of the problem. It's not having it. It's loving it. It's desiring it. Namely, replacing God with it. It's getting from money what you should be getting from God. Did you see what it says? And when you do, it won't contain itself. It won't be 
limited just to things that money can buy. Can I tell you, it is a scourge. Loving money is a, pl- is a plague. It is a cancer. How do I know so? Because it is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not content, it's not content, content just to get you and your finances messed up. No, he wants to use money to mess you all up. Now and for eternity, I have seen it happen. Money leads to stealing. I've seen money lead to divorce, lying, broken families, broken marriages, criminal activity, violence, murder. In fact, perhaps some of you have been having horrible times in your marriage and home right now, and the reason is money. It's it's real in your home. Fighting over inheritances. No talking or communicating to people in your family because of money, and they didn't pay you back. See, love of money spawns all kinds of evil. But that's not, an, that's not all. In fact, it's not even the worst part of it. Loving money condemns people. Did you hear what he said in verses 9 and 10? Look at it. It drowns people. Have you ever seen someone, and I have because I was a lifeguard growing up, you ever see someone who is out far from the shore and they're starting to go under and they have no way to get back up? You can see it in their eyes. They're panicking. They think this is it. They don't see anyone that will come and help them. They begin to believe that their life is over. Drowning, submerged. Submerged in the waters. The drowning waters of loving money is horrific. See, it's not just that they're drowning physically, they are drowning in judgment. See, it's not partial devastation that money-loving longs for you. It is total devastation. The words are meaningful, and Paul puts them together as a couplet. They are destruction and perdition. He did not say one without the other. The destruction is eternal because it's in perdition. The word perdition is the word used in Revelation 17:8, referring to where the beast and the prophet, the false prophet, are in hell. Do you see what Paul's saying? It's worse than just temporary consequences, loving money. Oh, no, eternal consequences. People leave their entire views and beliefs in God and turn their back on him for what money can give and buy. Oh, Paul repeats it all throughout 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Some will depart from the faith. It's the word apostatize. Some will wander away from the faith. He says some even swerve from the faith. They're all words of people who profess to know Christ, but by their love of money over time and the choices they make prove that that profession was never real. They didn't lose their salvation. They never had it. And money love just demonstrated it when they walked into the room. There are two people in 2 Timothy that are even named for this, Philemon, Philetus and Hymaeus, it says. They're named. Why? Because they want you to know that that was their identity. It says they were upsetting the faith of others. Oh, I think Taylor Swift was right on this note. You will be defined by what you love. The question is, what will you love? Paul wants to know. Because someday you will step into the final room, the throne room of God, and all will be revealed. Run from it. Hide from money-loving. Not by having more things, 
but be giving them away. Oh, pray this. God, help me to know you and to demonstrate it by your grace through the way that I use my money for the sake of the kingdom. It will be revealed someday, and you will day, that day you will walk into the room, and you will really know. You can know now. Give it to the Lord. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, the question today has not been, will you love? To be human is to love. The real question is not, will you love, but what you will love? What will you love supremely? What will guide your choices? Perhaps there's some here today and you say, you know, Pastor Walker, there's some things I would thought I would never have done. Years ago, I was against it, but now I don't. You know why? Money. I would have never done this. I would have never had this in my marriage, my family. I would never have thought this about my job, but I do now. Can you see the focus, the temporality of it all? Where is your heart today? Who is your treasure? Oh, Father. Help us. It will be hard today, very hard, to seek, seek the truth about ourselves. When it comes to money, too often we don't want to see it. All of us, to some degree today, need to repent of these things. To invest our money in the kingdom where it really matters. It's not that we can't have money. It's not that we can't enjoy things and and possessions, and vacations, but not when they rival our affections for you. Not when we give to God if we can, if it works in. He takes a back seat after everything else. Oh, Father, you're far more worthy than that. Lord Jesus, you died for us. Help us to live lives worthy of that sacrifice, even when it comes to our money. And we'll thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.